0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Disembarkation, disembarkation.
1: Notice to all passengers arriving on Station Arrakis. The Dune Planetary Tourism Consortium, funded by the great generosity of the most noble House Harkonnen, would like to welcome you to planet Arrakis. Arrakis is a dry place. Please remember to conserve water whenever possible. It is recommended that you do not venture outside without a properly fitted stillsuit suit to recycle your sweat, urine, and fecal moisture. When traveling beyond the shield wall, remember always to watch for worm sign by keeping in mind the three H's, hissing, heaving, and high-energy discharge. The hissing sound in the sand, heaving up of displaced sediment, and high-energy static discharge from the dunes may all indicate that a sandworm is near. In the event of worm sign, do not activate shields and proceed immediately to the nearest cave, building, or evacuation ornithopter. Local vendors and kiosks found throughout Station Arrakis are the best place to purchase steel suits, frame kits, and individually packaged worm numbers at duty-free prices. Please remember also, the spice must flow. Anyone suspected of sabotaging, inhibiting, or interfering with spice production may be subject to penalties, up to and including gladiatorial remuneration on Gating Prime, or personal evaporation.
0: Please enjoy your stay among the dunes. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And this is episode two in our uh, exploration of the science of Dune. The science of Frank Herbert's 1965 sci-fi classic, dune which is celebrating its 50th uh, anniversary this year
1: yeah so if you missed the first part you should go back and listen to that first part one where we talk about the technology of dune and we we talk about some important sort of introductory materials to the universe of dune if you're not familiar with it uh we highly recommend that you check out that part first before you listen to this one but if you just want to get thrown right into the middle here we are
0: yeah Last time we talked about Butlerian Jihad. We talked about still suits. We talked about ornithopters and a little bit
1: about uh, the the Holtzman effect, whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, this time we're going to talk more about the the living science of Dune, about the biology and ecology of the planet Arrakis, and. One of the coolest things about the Dune universe has got to be the sandworms. Yes, I imagine that is one of, if not the key
0: aspects of the franchise that come to people's minds when they think
1: of Dune. Yeah, I so I just finished reading this book a few weeks ago, and I loved it. I absolutely adored this book. As I said in the last podcast, it frequently struck me as just amazingly fresh for a 50-year-old book. It's full of ideas that you don't encounter elsewhere. It it just felt very original and unique and different. But the moment where the book really kicked into gear for me was the first sandworm attack.
0: Oh, and this is when uh, they're going out to observe Spice harvests,
1: correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to kind of put you, the listener, into the, the moment of the sandworm attack. So Imagine you're one of a group of 26 spice miners... Working on a patch of spice in the deep desert. So you're out there among the dunes. Uh, the the heat is high. The sun's bearing down on you. You've got your protective still suit on. You're working the harvester machine, trying desperately to get this spice going. Uh, and you you've been at it for several minutes. And overhead there's this enormous cargo aircraft. I, I suppose it would be some type of ornithopter with flapping wings, which, as we discussed in the last last episode, doesn't make a lot of aerodynamic sense. But okay. Uh, And it's called a carry-all. It hovers nearby waiting to lift you off at a moment's notice. And preferably at the last possible minute to maximize the profits because you've got to get as much spice as you can. The spice is important. The spice must flow. The universe needs it. But a worm will come. The worm always comes. It hears the harvester. It knows where you are. And the moment you start working, it's on its way. Now, with proper precautions, you'll lift off at just the right moment. You'll get the maximum spice, and you'll avoid the worm. But if you're not able to lift off in time, you may notice a hissing sound in the sand, sliding—you know—it's sand sliding against sand. This in the background. Uh, you might see a static discharge in the air, and eventually, you're going to notice an upheaval of sand as the worm rises to the shallows of the desert and then finally you see and it's probably the last thing you see a great gaping circular mouth maybe up to 80 meters wide emerging from the dunes spreading open closing over you and swallowing you and your friends and your mining vehicle all in one bite it's quite a sight and uh, as far as sound goes we do want to give a quick
0: thanks to Chris Knife 007 uh, he's on Bandcamp as Cheesy Nervosa. We'll include a link uh, to his account on the landing page for this episode. But uh, he does a lot of cool ambient tracks uh, where he, he gets the, the ambience from uh, from
1: various sci-fi properties. And mm-hmm. so this was the, the track that we used here was Dune Sandworm Ride. Yeah. So I love the sandworms. I love the sandworm scenes in the book. When we first encounter sandworms in the book, it's they're merely as a threat. You know, this this huge, terrifying beast that lives in the desert. It's you know, it's a gigantic snake, eel, worm type creature that is sort of like the monsters in Tremors. You know, it it lives under yeah, yeah, it lives under the ground. It can hear where you are. You know, it might be hundreds of meters long. They're so huge you you can't fight them off. There's no way to avoid them except to run.
0: Yeah, and I've I've seen it uh, described that uh, that that uh, Frank Herbert's sandworms are are kind of like dragons, in but but not merely in just the threat uh, aspect, not just a monstrous dragon,
1: but a celestial dragon, because they're ultimately the gateway to wisdom. Yeah, that's true. Because well, I don't want to spoil too much, but then later on in the book, we learn that the desert dwellers of the planet Arrakis, the Fremen have a more complex relationship with the sandworms. It's not just, you know, here's this huge threatening creature that we have to avoid. They they have a sort of a, a bit of a back and forth. Uh, yeah. I don't want to say too much more, but it it's really interesting. And so I thought we should talk about the sandworm. What is this organism as it's imagined in the Dune universe and uh, how has this changed the way we think about aliens in science fiction and what what analogies can we make to real world life forms?
0: Yeah. And for starters, let's we'll just go ahead and, and roll through what we know from, uh, from Frank Herbert's books. And again, it's one of those cases where Herbert throws a lot of information at you about how sandworms work. But then when you add it all up. Right. You realize you don't know key things. Um, here's what we know. The sandworm, uh, or Shai I believe that is the, the yeah. Fremen uh, term. A creature, again, utterly unique to Arrakis, totally tied to a complex life cycle on the desert planet. Lengths uh, exceed 400 meters, widths of 100 meters at the thickest point, perhaps as long as 1,000 meters in the, the deep, isolated parts of the desert. Uh, mouth diameter is probably about 80 meters so when it's open and lined with a 1,000 or more carbo-silica crystal teeth. Um, a typical worm consists of 100 to 400 segments, and each segment uh, possesses its own nervous system. Oh. That's something to keep in mind for later. Now, what Herbert didn't tell us, he didn't tell us whether Sanborns lay eggs. They, He didn't tell us if they're male and female, how re- reproduction occurs at all. He didn't tell us if it's uh, definitively, if it's a vertebrate or an invertebrate. He didn't explain the physics of how it moves, and he didn't
1: tell us what it eats. I would be surprised if it's vertebrate uh, simply because I think of vertebrate as a category belonging to Earth life. I mean, I think yeah. it might have some kind of internal... You know, rigid structure, but it's weird to think about those. You know, those peculiarities of evolution that seem so ubiquitous on Earth. We just assume they're natural categories, but I mean, who, who knows if a alien life form is likely to have a backbone?
0: Right, and I think that ultimately the like the segmented nature and the independence of the segments tends to imply something that is inherently invertebrate. But uh, but again, he doesn't draw a distinct
1: line in the sand if you will well then to learn more about the sandworm I think we're going to have to turn back to our old friends that we mentioned in the last episode a couple of books that we used as resources Uh, so one of these is going to be The Science of Dune edited by uh, Kevin R. Grazier and then the other one is the Dune Encyclopedia right?
0: right Uh, that one's compiled by Dr. Willis E. McNally that came out in 85 it's out of print but you can still find uh, used copies uh, in various places Uh, and I got mine Online for like, uh, you know, 15 or 20 bucks. So it's, it's still out there, and it's not like a, an out-of-your-reach collector's item. In particular, uh, the, the explanations for sandworms from these two books. Uh, from Dune Encyclopedia, we have an explanation by Maureen A. Shifflett. And um, in The Science of Dune, we have uh, Sybil Hetchel PhD's explanation from uh, her piece, The Biology of the Sandworm. Now, I'm actually going to start with the Dune Encyclopedia explanation from uh, Maureen Um uh, Shiflet goes ahead and defines both male and female sandworms. Okay. Uh, the latter uh, somewhat smaller than the males uh, with a, the secondary segment um, of each worm containing its reproductive system. And she uh, posits that at age 1,000, because these are long-living creatures, the female develops an egg sac in her reproductive system, uh, constructs a, uh, a deep, massive nest, and then attracts a male with rhythmic thumping. Now, this is okay. key because in, the, in, in Dune we see people uh, attracting or distracting
1: a worm by using a mechanical thumper. Right. Yeah, that's one of the technologies we could have talked about in the last episode, but I guess we just didn't have time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the thumper is a sort of, you might think of it as a defensive decoy mechanism out in the desert where if you want to draw off a sandworm or perhaps even attract a sandworm, mm-hmm. you put this thing down in the ground and it starts beating on the sand to say, come on over. Yeah, with a rhythmic pattern because if you, uh, you know, there's like the saying,
0: you you, you got to walk without rhythm. It, yeah you know unless you want to attract the worm and right so uh, yeah one of the things that's frequently mentioned in the book is that if you want to walk across the sand and not attract the the worm.
1: You have to walk without rhythm, you have to walk without any kind of uh, cadence to your walk and I love how they bring up the fact that this is so much harder to do than it sounds like mm-hmm. like the the characters are just exhausted from trying to walk without maintaining a rhythm of their gait
0: right and so she ties this into the into the life cycle of the the uh, the worm by saying that it's that kind of uh, rhythmic um, uh, thumping that not only indicates something unnatural on the desert surface, but perhaps the mating cry, the mating call of the female worm. So she says that then uh, the male would arrive, consumes the the smaller female, just straight up eats (laughs) the the, the female, and then goes into a dormant state. And it's during this state that the the heavy-duty spice fiber egg sac remains intact and is fertilized by the male's reproductive system. And uh, then when he wakes up, he's going to spit
1: that fertilized egg sac out. What? Yeah. I mean, I've heard of reproductive cannibalism, but what? Yeah, this is, it's an interesting,
0: uh, uh, and and again, this is, you know, Herb taking Herbert's world and extrapolating on it and trying to come up with a scientific explanation for how it might work. Right. It's not, this is not canon by any means. But uh, it it is interesting because we don't see sexual cannibalism occur in nature that I can think of where the male eats the female. Because generally the female is the species. And she may or may not eat the male after he's served his purpose. Yeah, but here we have the male consuming the female. The...
1: Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, that just makes me wonder if uh, this almost would start to play with the definitions of what counts as male and what counts as female in a species.
0: Yeah, I would. I feel like I would feel more comfortable with this example if the genders were reversed, and the prim- primarily the sandworms are, are female. But uh, but you know, either way, the. the the, the best example that comes to mind of something close to this
1: in the natural world would be um, anglerfish, where you have... Oh, um, those great things. So you've probably seen pictures of yeah. these from the deep ocean. They look like movie monsters. Uh, they've got the crazy faces, and they, they've got a little uh, lit-up lit fishing pole, right? Yeah, and those are the females. The females are the ones we see pictures of. The males
0: um, are essentially a tiny, heat-seeking sexual missile equipped with gigantic nostrils. Uh, all they do is they swim out in search of a female. And if he's lucky, uh, and most are not, they find one and they bite onto her abdomen and hang on. Again, these are the anglerfish, real-world organisms, nothing from sci-fi. And oh then man! I'm looking. I just Google.
1: Sorry, I, I looked I just Googled pictures of the male anglerfish attaching to the female anglerfish, and it's pathetic.
0: It's, it's a, <laughs> You could go with that interpretation because what happens is not only does he bite on and hold on, but their flesh grows together, their blood vessels uh, connect, and the male becomes a mere part of the female's body, sustained by her systems. His eyes, fins, and some internal organs all atrophy, uh, and just leave him as just this fat flap of skin. This just mindless thing on the female. In this way, the male and his reproductive systems are always there when she needs them, which is a necessary adaptation in the, the dark, lonely world of the deep ocean. That's fascinating. I've never read about this before. I, I, was real, I ran across it in the past year or two and was pretty amazed by it. But that's certainly a, it's a case where the male and female fuse into one, and I guess you could interpret this consumption of the, of the female sandworm as more of a merging than a consumption, since there's not uh, according to her model, anyway, there's not really any nourishment to be gained from the the worm eating the other worm. Okay. So this is where we start getting into a more complex life cycle. So <laughs> bear with me, everyone. Um, when the male some uh, so the male sandworm comes to, vomits up that egg case, and he takes off. The egg case eventually hatch, hatches into a legion of sand trout. Sand trout. Sand trout. Yes. And now these these <laughs> this is where we're getting back into um, into the actual canon. Of, uh, of of Frank Herbert's uh, sandworm biology, because these are very much a part of the series.
1: Yeah, there, there are sequences in Dune where a uh, character, well, at least one character I can think of, the planetary scientist Kynes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may be other characters, but not that I recall. At least Kynes thinks about down under the the, the dunes of sand, there are these massive patches of life and there's moisture down there too which is sort of hidden from the surface which is i guess being trapped or used by these unicellular life forms yeah and in this case we're talking 20 by 6 uh,
0: centimeter unicellular organisms what that's a big cell yeah you know <laughs> alien world different laws right yeah um but uh, but yeah they're water scavengers so the idea here is that they're traveling out they're collecting water they're bringing them back According to um, to this uh, model, anyway, to the nest site, and they're sequestering the water. And here, the water mixes with excretions from the pre-spice mass, uh, and here the CO2 CO2 builds up as a byproduct, and this eventually results in a spice blow explosion. And this is very much a part of the books, where eventually. The pressure builds up and it blasts that precious spice melange that's produced uh, somehow by this sand trout uh, nesting, water uh, sequestering action. blows yeah. it up to the surface where people can say, hey, there's some spice there. Let's go get it. All right. All right. So, but it's not only people that want to come get the spice, it also attracts the sandworms, which we'll get into. Um and at this point according to Schifflet uh the sandworms enter a pre metamorphic stage during which surviving sand trout uh, join bodies. And as metamorphosis sets in properly, each sand trout, also known as a little maker uh, among the Fremen, becomes a segment of a conjoined body that becomes a small sandworm. So again ah. we see conjoined bodies coming into play. Uh and this is uh, this is
1: certainly part of uh, of Herbert's uh Original model for the sandworm. So this is fascinating because the sandworm, in that sense, is, is sort of a composite organism.
0: Yes, very much so. Um, and this this play—I don't want to give any spoilers—but this also plays out
1: in rather unique and mind-blowing ways in the sequels. Okay, so how long does it take for little sand trout joining together to become the gigantic Shaihalud, like we see in the book? You know, before they're a, they're a big sandworm out in the desert. Oh,
0: over over a thousand years. Because uh, it's going to take that long, according to Schifflit here, to uh, segment uh, for the segments to take on uh, you know uh, the different properties such as the the toothed head, the uh, reproductive system. If you're going by her model, and uh, during this time if environmental conditions are not met, then the undifferentiated segments can
1: revert to sand trout. Oh, so yeah. that's kind of like those jellyfish that can that can reverse age, right? Yeah, they yeah. Can revert to the the earlier life form stage if things aren't going well.
0: Yeah, I like that detail that she throws in. And uh, finally, the asexual juvenile worm develops, and it's 20 to 30 meters long, and this is the form that uh, Fremen uh, eventually capture and drown to produce spice essence. Um, More about spice in this episode yeah, later. that's coming up. Uh, most juveniles, according to Shiflet, would become females, uh, but it's possible that, and it's possible that the environmental absence of a male is what results in male development. Uh, in the book itself, we're told that each male has a 300 to 400 kilometer territory that it defends against other worms. Mm. And she has a, a really interesting bit about
1: how that combat would work. Yeah, how do the worms fight each other if they're just they're huge worms with big circular mouths? Well, she draws on a
0: on a on a detail that we'll discuss uh, in in a minute. Um, or I guess let's go ahead and, and hit it. Uh, how does someone ride a sandworm?
1: Ah, yes. Well, this is something we learn about later in the book, and it's very interesting. So the sandworm, like the sandworms, like we mentioned, have these segments on their bodies. They have sort of scales that protects their soft, fleshy inner tissues from the, you know, the harsh exterior realities of Arrakis and Mm -hmm. all the sand. So a Fremen who is, who is hopped up on spice and ready to ride will go out into the desert with some hooks and attract a sandworm using a thumper. And if the sandworm comes by at the right time, the Fremen rider can get the hooks under one of the sandworm's outer plates or these scales, uh, segments, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, like the edge of the segments. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. and then pull it back. And what that does is expose the sandworm's inner tissues to the external elements. Obviously, the sandworm does not like this and says, oh, no, and it rolls over to protect the exposed part of its body from the sand and, and in doing so can lift the rider up onto its back. And then once you're going like that, the sandworm refuses – it doesn't resubmerge into the ground while it's got a part of its body exposed like that because it doesn't want sand to get in there and hurt it. So you can essentially ride this sandworm around as long as you want until it's just exhausted and collapses as long as you've got the hooks pulling back the plate. Right. Right. Did so, I describe that about right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's perfect.
0: And and so in Shiflet, trying to understand like what its teeth are for, she draws on this detail and says, "Well, uh, what happens when two males are, are getting into combat over territory? They're using those teeth to pull back uh, each other's segments." Uh, essentially wrestling that way. And uh, because, again, sand gets in there, it's going to irritate the flesh, and she uh, posits that in extreme cases this could result in a viral infection that could kill a worm. But generally the loser breaks away. So... Uh, yeah, just grappling with each other, exposing each other's inner flesh by pulling back with the teeth and, uh, f- eventually forcing one of them to give up and break.
1: Yeah, and a lot, it, it's like in nature on Earth, a lot of territorial disputes between, you know, angry males of species, they right. don't always end in death. They, they just, one of them's like, okay, I give up.
0: Yeah, if you can have it, you can eat all the females in this region that you want. <laughs> Um, finally, a word on diet from Shifflett. Um Her theory here is that the, the sandworm is a true autotroph. That's an organism that's able to, to form nutritional organic substances from simple inorganic substances such as carbon dioxide. Uh, in this case, the sandworm is producing all of its nutritional needs uh, from inorganic compounds on the planet's surface. The energy for this, she says, that it uh, it drives the synthetic uh, reactions uh, to completion just by by traveling across the sand, which causes an electrostatic charge differential, uh, which we do see in the books with the whole. You know, you see that you already mentioned the static uh, charge that tells you that a worm is approaching. Yeah. And uh, incidentally, she also uses this as a, an, as an explanation for why water would be fatal to a sandworm, in that it would cause the electrons to discharge
1: abnormally yeah now obviously it can't be that any mass of water is fatal to a sandworm because there there is some tiny amount of water on arrakis, but it sounds like a large amount of water will kill a sandworm
0: right and it it gets into that whole segmented thing because it's it 's mentioned in the book that to really kill a sandworm like to straight up kill it it 's so big and since each uh, since it doesn't have a central nervous system since each segment has its own nervous system you would have to just nuke the whole thing with one of your, your handy house atomics that you're not allowed to use anyway. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a complex uh, life cycle. Uh, and uh, it's, it's summed up in this brief bit from the Appendix to Dune. Now they had a circular relationship. Little Maker... Again, that's our uh, our sand trout to pre-spice mass little maker to shahalud shahalud to scatter the spice upon which fed microscopic creatures called sand plankton, which we'll get into. The sand plankton food for shahalud, growing, burrowing, <laughs> becoming little makers. Now, that of course is a little complicated, and we'll get into that because here it seems like how can one? It sounds like one part of its own life cycle is also. Part of is also its part of its diet.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's bizarre.
0: All right, and this brings us to biologist Sybil Hetchel, PhD's uh, "Science of Dune" explanation, which uh, is is also really interesting, and I think gives us our best comparison to real world biology. Okay, okay. So first of all, she uh, she she zooms in on the whole idea that sand trout produce oxygen deep underground, as mentioned by Kynes in the novel. But they need an energy source to produce oxygen. And since photosynthesis is out of the question... Because they're underground. Right. The best candidate is, of course, deep hydrothermal vents. That's how we see it working on Earth, right? Okay. Okay, so one could interpret the sand trout as the producer of melange. And that's... And certainly Herbert doesn't really say exactly. Like, it's just... Right. Sandworms are key to the production of, of spice melange, but don't know exactly how it goes
1: about yeah. happening. But, of course, we don't want them to go extinct. Right.
0: So Hetchel posits that just as sand trout scavenge in
1: herd water, they may also tend
0: a melange-producing fungus.
1: Ah, so in this case, then, it's not actually any part of the... Uh of the sandworm's life cycle that produces the spice, but they are harvesters of spice. Right. She's theorizing that they would sequester stashes of water uh,
0: around these uh, hydrothermal areas, and this would cause the spice fungus to grow. Uh, And in our world, plants, bacteria, and fungi produce the majority of exotic compounds, uh, such as psychedelic compounds. So this would make extra sense, right? The secondary compound that's synthesized for protection uh... by a particular uh... fungus
1: and of course there are examples of animals on earth that actually do practice farming i mean animals other than humans right the example here would be of course the leafcutter ants and that's yeah. the
0: comparison that that uh... Sybil Hitchell makes in this uh... in this piece the leafcutter ants uh... are of course uh... a number of species uh... that are found in the americas and they cut tree leaves they drag them to an underground growth chamber and they keep it moist to go cult- to cultivate fungi on the leaves um, and then they so they so basically it breaks down like this they they bring leaf cuttings back to the colony along uh, well worn forest roads and paths we 've probably all seen video or images of this you know oh, it's yeah. very very visual. Um, they filter out the bad cuttings, they hand the good ones off to their farmer ants, then they munch the leaf cuttings down into a fine mulch, then they grow the delicious fungi on that mulch, lay some eggs in it, and enjoy They drag the depleted leaf cuttings to the dump chamber along with all the dead ants and dead fungus. So the crazy part about this and ultimately kind of sci-fi uh, sounding thing about uh, the leafcutter ants is that they, they gave up hunting and gathering 50 million years ago and they became farmers. And their, they
1: they discovered the technology of agriculture before we did. They did. And, well, not only before we did, before we existed. Right.
0: They Not only did they find this substance, but they essentially domesticated it. Uh-huh. And it's grown extinct in the wild. Like it's
1: no longer something that they can go out and get. So the analogy here would be, imagine if leafcutter ants uh, could grow to become giant leafcutter ants that can eat a city. But also if the fungus that the little leafcutter ants grew in their colonies created a drug that lets you see the future.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Imagine all those leafcutter ants voltroning up into a larger organism over the course of a a thousand years. Uh Uh-huh. Um, and I do also want to know that it's it's also kind of like a caveman movie in that when um, a winged male prepares to leave a uh, leaf cutter, cutter ant colony to found a new colony, they have to take a sample of that precious fungi with them. Because, again, it doesn't exist in the wild anymore. Wow. I'm just continually fascinated by that. Um, We're completely at the mercy of the ants if we want this fungus. Exactly. And, of course, we don't want it, but they require it completely. It's key to their their um, their life. But back to the the sandworms. Okay, so we don't know exactly what sand plankton and sand trout are supposed to eat, but maybe they eat spice. Uh, and it and it, uh, but you know, it, but it wouldn't make sense. Hetchell argues for the creature to both create and consume spice. So the fungus again makes more sense
1: from from that analogy as well, from that comparison as well. So uh- she. Well, I mean, I wonder you could look at, depending on what you mean by create, uh, mm. you could look at an example like honey in a bee colony. You know, the bees don't create the honey, but they sort of, they process the honey.
0: Yes. And I think that would be an apt analogy here for the melange as well, that the melange yeah. is yeah, kind of is, is a created element. Um, so she argues that sand trout communities um, are essentially like a, a combination of leaf-cutting ant nest and hydrothermal vent community. And in this case, sand plankton and sand trout would subsist on living spice fungi and bacterial mats that grow around the vents. She also presents the notion that sand trout are essentially asexual, and they might subsist as clone communities for quite some time, at least until the buildup of carbon dioxide from their farming efforts triggers sexual reproduction and also triggers that spice blow uh, that results from the buildup. And then that uh, that would scatter the newly produced sand plankton. So then the sandworm comes in. It wants to eat up that spice. And in doing so, it disperses the offspring across vast distances because, of course, sandworms have those large uh, you
1: know, spread out territories. Uh, that makes sense with some earth, earth life, too. You can think about seeds that spread by growing in fruits that uh, predators want to come and eat or maybe not predators, you'd call them. I guess they're predators of the plant. Mm-hmm. They, they come and want to eat the fruit and then they take the seeds with them wherever they go afterwards. Yeah. So, uh,
0: it, now she also goes on in this piece, uh, she has some, some thoughts on size constraints of enormous organisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to read about that, do check out the book, do check out her piece, uh, but, uh, we're not going to
1: go into them in this podcast. So one of the things I've already mentioned that I really loved about Dune is that it's the most ecologically conscious novel I've ever read. It's, a, it's a novel that really, has interesting thoughts about ecosystems and about resources in ecosystems, like how resources get used and conserved, specifically water and spice, and then also about uh, how organisms feed into one another and and create ecosystems. There's actually a section in the book where the planetary scientist and ecologist Kynes has visions of his father, who is also an ecologist and lived among the Fremen on the, the Dune planet, and uh, the vision of his father says a couple of interesting things. He says, the more life there is within a system, the more niches there are for life. Life improves the capacity of the environment to sustain life. Life makes needed nutrients more readily available. It binds more energy into the system through the tremendous chemical interplay from organism to organism. And I think that makes a lot of sense because whenever you imagine a a rich, thriving ecosystem on Earth. It's one that ha- already has a lot of life forms succeeding in it. It's kind of counterintuitive from a resource competition or evolutionary perspective. Uh, places that have a lot of competition seem like they, they should be harder to survive in, but life creates ways for other life to thrive. And this is sort of part of the problem with arrakis as it's imagined unless you you imagine it terraformed and seeded with other life forms as some characters in the novel do kind of imagine Uh, i think primarily they talk about let's plant some grasses and you know and settle the dunes it doesn't seem to have enough biodiversity to be very hospitable to life forms and uh In addition to the sandworms, like what life forms are described as inhabiting Arrakis, Herbert mentions some scavenging birds and a few other carrion eaters and some kind of scrubby plants. Yeah. (laughs) But I got the sense – I don't know what you thought about this. I get the sense that a lot of these animals uh, that are described as inhabiting Arrakis are – Imports from human settlement. I don't know what you thought. That's about that.
0: that's the sense I got as well. That like the, the scavenging birds have certainly evolved over um, over time to uh, to thrive on Arrakis. Uh, like they're they're, you know, they're far more conscious. They can basically hear water, yeah. uh, you know, miles away. Uh-huh. But that they're essentially a, a terrestrial product. Yeah, While the sandworm is is entirely alien.
1: So I don't know, maybe somewhere in the, if it's in the sequels or if I missed it in the book, uh, Herbert does talk about other life forms native to Arrakis, but I can't think of any examples where I remember him talking about that. And, And I wanted to ask the question, if we imagine that the sandworm at the various stages of his life cycle were the one and only organism native to a planet, is something like that possible in reality? Can you have a one-organism ecosystem?
0: Yeah, even if it's a really complex organism like this one.
1: I was trying to find examples of this. Uh, I found one. Actually, I I think you found it first. But uh, in in 2008, there were reports that the first known single-organism ecosystem had been discovered, and this was miles under the Earth in the – I apologize if I'm pronouncing this wrong – Mumponing gold mine in South Africa, and it was a bacteria called Desulfuridus audaxviator. It was a rod-shaped bacterium, and it makes its living in a very remarkable way. It doesn't need sunlight, and it doesn't need any prey organisms. So it lives down there by itself, and instead it puts together the organic molecules it needs by access only to water, water, carbon and nitrogen in the ground using energy from, according to this Lawrence Berkeley uh, lab source I read on this, hydrogen and sulfate produced by the radioactive decay of uranium. Huh. So this is a, it's surviving on chemicals created by radiation in the ground, almost two miles under the ground. This is essentially about as close to an alien microbe as I've ever heard of on Earth. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty far removed from our you know, traditional uh, ecosystem model. Yeah, and so I, I just thought that was fascinating. Uh, but another way of thinking about it is if, if you imagine way, way back in time to, I don't know, situations of, of abiogenesis on Earth,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you probably at least have to imagine that there are some periods in the history of life where there was only one organism – Um, And then and then, of course, we got uh, a branching ecosystem. So that, again, makes me wonder if you could naturally have a planet where there's really only one type of organism there. It seems like the natural course of biological evolution is to diversify. Yeah. Hmm. But another way of thinking about this (laughs) that that occurred to me is that what if. It is the case that the, the sandworm in its various stages of life is the only major organism alive on Arrakis, and it wasn't always that way. And so it could have been a planet rich with life that has essentially been conquered by a single invasive species. Mm-hmm. Like there's okay. one organism that destroys all eco diversity on the planet.
0: I could say okay. I could see that being the case too. Yeah, where you end up with just a sandworm only ecosystem because it's that dominant a species in this environment.
1: Yeah, I mean, one wonders how sustainable a system like that would be. But, <laughs> uh, and then, of course, if, if you want to think about other parallels to the sandworm, in reality, you've co- of course got the Mongolian deathworm.
0: Ah, now the Mongolian deathworm is not real, though, right? The- Maybe not to you yeah. well i didn 't know if maybe I 'd missed a new study where occasionally you see an
1: expedition to to to, uh, to find it uh, no, um, as far as i 'm aware, no one has ever discovered the Mongolian deathworm, okay. but if you 're not familiar, you should I, I bet you 've written a blog post about that
0: i don 't know if i 've ever really covered Mongolian deathworm um, I have run across. you have something called a sandworm that lives in you know beach sand, but of course that 's an entirely different scenario yeah that 's unfortunate.
1: <laughs> Okay, Robert. Yes. Imagine yourself at a party with some hip young people. Okay. Who start passing around the hottest new designer drug. It is the spice melange. And Herbert never is exactly clear what the spice in the book looks like, but I'm going to try to imagine it here based on a scene from the movie and a, a description quote I read from a from a sequel. Uh, it's, it's a little glass box. Mm-hmm. And then inside the box there is some orange mass. It almost looks like a, like an evacuated insect shell, you know, how, mm-hmm. like when the, the cicadas leave their shells behind after they molt. Uh, it's some stuff like that is kind of brownish orange. And then you press down a little piston to crush some of this stuff in the glass and an orange liquid strains out. And it smells like cinnamon. And you can drink it right up or you can add it to food or beverages or have it transformed into a gas if you're a guild navigator in a tank. But it's going to be doing some weird stuff to you.
0: Yeah. And if you're an Iraqi uh, denizen, if you, if Iraqis is your home and you're not privy to a lot of, uh, outsider food coming in from other worlds, uh, it's just going to find its way into your diet. It's just an ambient part
1: of, of water and food on the world, yeah. And if you're not careful, and you keep taking too much spice, you may begin to see the future and become fatally addicted. Yeah, and your eyes will turn blue. Despite the fatal addiction, there's something kind of appealing about the way they describe some of the spice consumption in the novel. Yeah,
0: they mention uh, having, you know having a cup of uh, spice coffee. Uh, some, I think there's some spice cakes uh, that are mentioned here and there. And yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. You're like, yeah, I would kind of like that. A, a nice. Uh, you know, a nice consciousness-expanding cup of coffee as opposed to this, you know, these
1: Red Bull and Samuda cocktails that I keep guessing. <laughs> so uh, characteristics of the spice in the book, which vary according to the, the person taking it and the intake level, would be some of the following. First, I should say, at its core, the spice is described, I think, as an awareness drug mm-hmm. in that it changes perception and consciousness. Uh, now, the first major feature described is that it's the geriatric spice. It's when taken in small quantities over long periods of time, it extends your lifespan. And that's something we we probably should have mentioned more uh,
0: earlier on. Like, that's another reason... That uh, Arrakis is, is the center of the universe, because not only does the spice enable uh, interstellar travel, uh, it also allows the wealthy people to extend their lives.
1: Right. Once you're a feudal lord and you've conquered all your enemies and you've secured uh, a place in the in the power structures of the universe, what's the next thing you need? you got to live forever. Right. So it does that. And then another effect of it is that it stains your eyes. Uh, taking spice will, will cause blue tinting of the eyes, not just the irises, but the whole eye. Mm-hmm. It's a mind expander. It grants heightened awareness. In some cases, it allows prescience or limited omniscience. Uh, I don't know if limited omniscience is, is a phrase that makes any sense. It allows you to have some knowledge beyond your physical time and place and the ability to see some aspects of the future or aspects of the present removed by distance or to share communal awareness, sort of collaborating across aspects of mind with others. Yeah. And they often make geographic comparisons in the book. So it's like yeah. looking into
0: the future is kind of like looking across a landscape. And depending on your circumstances, you might be kind of standing in a like a, a shallow basin, and you can't actually see that far. Other times, it's flat. Other times, maybe you're on a hill. And it depends on your prescient abilities. How far can you see?
1: Yeah, and then, of course, the negative, the, the downside I alluded to earlier is the addiction. When you take it in large quantities, you will get addicted to it and if you stop taking it, you will die. Ah, well, that'll happen. Yeah, unfortunately. So the idea of a drug that expands consciousness is certainly something you find in many cultures, right, including our own. Mm -hmm. Lots of people believe things like hallucinogens like LSD, marijuana, psilocybin mushrooms, uh, and uh, the ayahuasca brew, which I think the the chemical... uh, the, the active chemical in that is DMT, right? Right. Yeah. And so under various circumstances, people have suggested all these drugs not only provide euphoria and sometimes sensory hallucinations, but they actually provide access to information or knowledge about reality that is not otherwise available to people. One of the most common claims you hear is the the sort of transcendence journey, you might call it, where the hallucinogen gives the user a mental vantage point from which he or she claims to see a deeper reality or to now understand that our day-to-day experiences are not all there is. I'm sure you've encountered this before.
0: Oh, yeah. And, of course, it's – I mean, that's key to most religions, too, that you have – at the heart, there's a deeper understanding of reality um, that you have to uncover
1: yeah, and I, I think that's interesting. I think the the hallucinogen comparison to spice is perhaps quite on point because in a 2005 book called Mycelium Running by the American mycologist Paul Stamets, that's a person who studies fungus, mm-hmm. uh, the author claims that, that Frank Herbert – well, I should just read this quote. It says uh, – uh, he says that Frank Herbert was apparently an enthusiastic mushroom collector himself who came up with this great – System for uh, for growing chanterelle mushrooms in a way that people hadn't realized how to do before by creating huh. this spore slurry in a bucket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, he, he says of Frank Herbert, Frank went on to tell me that much of the premise of Dune, the magic spice, spores, that allowed the bending of space, tripping, the giant worms, maggots digesting mushrooms, the eyes of the Fremen, the cerulean blue of psilocybin mushrooms, the mysticism of the female spiritual warriors, the Binny Jesserets, influenced by tales of Maria Sabina and the sacred mushroom cults of Mexico, came from his perception of the fungal life cycle, and wow. his imagination was stimulated through his experiences with the use of magic mushrooms.
0: All right. Well, they, that that certainly matches up with uh, with what we see in the book. And again, bearing in mind that this is uh, you know rising out of nineteen sixty five, the mid sixties, and and uh, and a lot of the counterculture movements that were taking place there, and, uh, and, and the and the the role of drugs and hallucinogens in that
1: subculture. Yeah, yeah. Certainly. Though one thing about that that was weird. I, I googled the the psilocybin mushrooms, and they didn't look blue to me. I don't know. Yeah, images. Maybe sometimes that blue. I have
0: seen have not. Yeah, they look like mushrooms to me.
1: <laughs> I've never noticed a, a blue one. Anyway, to go back to The Science of Dune, the uh, the writer Carol Hart, Ph.D., has a great essay about the spice melange in The Science of Dune. And she makes some really interesting points comparing spice to hallucinogens like the ones I mentioned above, uh, LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, uh, ayahuasca. And the, there are the following changes that you can notice that are similar. One would be changes to the eyes. Uh, the spice, it seems, causes a more permanent kind of change with the blue tint, mm-hmm. but hallucinogens like LSD and ayahuasca typically cause an extreme dilation of the pupils. Okay. She also notices uh, suspension of time, right? Mm-hmm. Ecstatic, uh, an ecstatic and sometimes frightening sense of communion with others out-of-body sensations, loss of self and merger into a oneness, euphoria, death-rebirth experience, uh, visions-slash-hallucinations, and prescience and life-changing realizations. And I think this is one of the most interesting things because, like I said earlier, a lot of times people take hallucinogens not just with the idea that, I'm going to see something interesting, but they take it with the idea that they're learning something about the true nature of reality. They're getting access to facts and useful information. She says, for example, for the Amazonian shamans, ayahuasca allowed the soul to leave the body, to search out the explanation for illness in the individual or problems threatening the community and to decide the course of action.
0: Yeah. I've, I remember reading, uh, some words from, uh, Buddhist um, Alan Watts, uh, who was also part of you know the uh, certainly a, a name during the 60s and 70s and yeah. he was commenting on uh, on the, the use of uh, of psychedelic drugs uh, in, in the counterculture and he he compared them to the use of a, a telescope or a microscope huh. that it's something that you uh, you know you put your eye to the telescope or the microscope uh, to learn something about reality, but then you also have to re-engage with reality you have to put the telescope or the microscope down in order to uh, to take those lessons and apply them to life.
1: Yeah. Another really interesting parallel with Dune, I think, is that the effect of the drug, whether you're talking about real hallucinogens or the spice in Dune, is not just a product of the drug. It's not just here are the molecules in the drug and what they'll do to you. But they're a they're a product, a sort of combinatorial product of the drug acting on body and the preparation that the user has experienced. Mm-hmm. So it's about preparation. It's about departure state. Some people will take acid, take LSD, and just mess around and have some weird experiences and don't learn a whole lot from it. Some people might have bad trips. Some people might have what they would consider to be transcendent experiences. And I I think there are a lot of people who, throughout the years, have been advocates of controlled hallucinogen use who lament the fact that it's taken for kicks.
0: Yeah, I mean, we look at some of the the current research, and we're finally seeing a, a lot more research into psychedelics uh, uh, these days. For a while, it was such a taboo area, you know, really kind of poisoned by uh, the, the more uh, you know extreme aspects of the, the counterculture and the way that it uh, it gained um, uh, coverage in the media. We're finally seeing it uh, being an area that can get funded and get and and be studied. Uh, and there have been uh, some some really fascinating looks into how. The right levels of hallucinogens, combined with appropriate priming, uh, you know, preparation for the experience, uh, and as well as sort of after uh, exploration of what they felt, it can be used to to help uh, terminally ill patients as they prepare to die. It can be used uh, in in various therapies, uh, even addiction therapies. Uh, so, so yeah, the the priming, the purpose, really, the ritual of it uh, is essential. I mean, I imagine a number of our listeners can think of. You know, some individual they've come across before that, at least on the surface, looks like they are gaining nothing of value from their experimentation with psychedelics. And and then on the other hand, you know, there are cases where, you know, this particular thinker um, claims to have had some sort of profound insight Um intellectually or creatively while uh, trying one of these substances.
1: Yeah. So uh, as Albert Hoffman, the discoverer of LSD once wrote, he said, special internal and external advanced preparations are required with them. An LSD experiment can become a meaningful experience. So I think he was one of those people you're talking, you know, who, who recommended the, the preparations that go into making yourself ready for the mental journey of expanded consciousness. Yeah. If you don't put the preparation time in, it doesn't work. And, And we see this in the novel Dune. Because people consuming lots of spice react to it in very different ways. You get the sense that when Paul Atreides starts taking lots of spice and then has his moment of expanded consciousness, begins to see the future, begins to have uh, you know heightened awareness and, and prescience and limited omniscience, it's all because of the things that have gone into making Paul who he is. It's not just like he got a really strong hit of it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so it's the fact that he's been trained, uh, in the, the Benny ways that we talked about in the last episode, in the Mintat ways. All this that went into making him who he is also made the expanded consciousness what it was. You can see that in contrast to a, another character in the, the novel, the twisted Mintat. Do you call him Piter or Peter?
0: Um- I always read it as Peter, but I yeah. Peter might be more uh, accurate.
1: They call him Piter in the David Lynch movie. I'll okay. call him Peter. Peter DeVries, the the bad mintat who mm. works for the evil Harkonnens, uh, he, they say he takes huge amounts of spice, too. He, he just gobbles it like candy, can't yeah. get enough of it. But he does not seem to have this same type of expanded awareness that Paul has from extended spice use. And it seems to be that it's it's because of different types of preparation going into the experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, the other example, of course, the guild navigators who have been engineered uh, and bred to, to pilot these spaceships uh, while using the spice. So they consume the spice in order to safely navigate folded space. And as uh, celestial mechanic John C. Smith points out in The Science of Dune, uh, there's a quantum physics tie-in here. So e- eight years before the publication of Dune, physicist Hugh Everett III proposed a, a radical interpretation of quantum mechanics, that everything that can happen does happen, and each possible action spawns a new universe.
1: This is what's known as the many worlds yes. theory. Every time there's a, an indeterminate quantum event, the, world, the universe branches off into separate realities.
0: It's the very thing that, uh, that Borges uh, referenced uh, with the Library of Babel that uh, this library would contain not only all books but all possible books. So taking the spies here would have allowed the navigator to at least see the immediate path of the ship in many different multiverses uh, and then safely you know, choose the safest path. Um, and interestingly enough, there is kind of a real-world tie-in here because... <laughs> According to a 1973 study compiled by the RAND Corporation for the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, um, there was a Soviet uh, plan to launch uh, psychics into orbit. Uh, How much much space should we put in this report? Mm, I mean, maybe a grain of salt. I'll, (laughs) I'll read the quote here. Regarding precognition, we found only one unverified report by a Soviet investigator that a program was being planned to train astronauts to, quote, foresee and to avoid accidents in space. <laughs> it was clear from the context that he was referring to precognitive process. So, I don't know. Uh, I, if they did look into it, obviously it didn't work out. But this was a time of when... You know, the stakes were high in the Cold War. So if there was a possibility that there was something to some sort of paranormal uh situation, sure. you checked it out.
1: Yeah, why not train a bunker full of psychics?
0: Yeah. The same um the same Rand Corporation uh report also mentioned um that there was a test into psychic communication by sacrificing a litter of baby rabbits on board of a on board a Soviet submarine. What? Uh, and the idea here was that the mother rabbit located on the surface might receive psychic signals from the dying young. So, I, again, uh, this is all unverified, but. <laughs> But it, it, it seems possible, based on, on some of the other reports we've heard about both the U.S. and Soviet investigations into
1: the potential use of paranormal effects. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me about the role of Spice in the Dune universe is that it, it posits a world in which the entire universe is completely dependent on a resource that, that essentially produces effects similar to things that are taboo in our culture – that uh, not only do we, you know, not depend on as a society, but we try to stamp out and say that's not okay.
0: Yeah, like um, essentially, everyone in the book seems to be taking some sort of um, um, performance-enhancing substance. If it's not melange, then it's the. Um, uh, then you know then they're taking Samuda or they're taking the, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but that wine that the Mintants drink, which I yeah. believe is supposed to be derived from the same source as Samuda. Yeah, the
1: purple stained lips.
0: Yeah, so everybody's just cranked to the gills on something because you can't depend on the thinking machine. you got to depend on the human mind.
1: So maybe you could say that if we had to get rid of our computers, there would be, I don't know, less opposition to recreational drug use. Maybe so, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: All right, you know, we're running out of time here, and I, I don't know. We might even have to cut this part. But um, I do want to mention the uh, Bini Thelaxu face dancers before we close out. These are characters that you did not encounter in the book because they don't show up until book two and then oh, okay. play an increasingly important role moving on. But uh, as we mentioned, uh, I think, in the first episode, the Bini Thelaxu. This is a, a group, this is like a, a faction in the Dune universe that are really involved in uh, transhuman, post-human uh, machinations. They're changing the human form, uh, engineering uh, new people uh, to, uh, to survive in this post-singularity, you know, post-Butlerian jihad world. And, uh, so they're doing things like, uh, like essentially engaging in cloning, the produce of these gulas that play an Im- important role in the later books where a dead individual is brought back as a clone. Um, oh, I like the sound of that. Yeah. They're the, um, they're the, the faction that creates the twisted, uh, mentats that we've already discussed. And then they also have these face dancers who are known and feared as spies and assassins. Um. And they're essentially they shapeshifters. They can change their their face, their appearance, um, their their voice, uh, everything to resemble another person. Um, and, and so they you know it gives them unparalleled acting ability. They serve as entertainers throughout the galaxy, and um, and they're also key uh, Thilaxu diplomats and conspirators, uh, as and, and as well as just core members of their society.
1: Uh-huh.
0: So. Uh, There are actually a couple of uh, of cool articles about how this might work, essentially how a shape-shifting humanoid might work as an organism. Uh, The first uh, and the the primary one I want to mention comes to us from the uh, 1984 Dune Encyclopedia, and uh, this is from uh, contributor Walter E. Myers. And he very much envisions... Face Dancer Biology, a shape-shifting biology, as a complex creation of training, breeding, embryonic manipulation, genetic tinkering, and surgical augmentation. So basically throwing all of these various... Everything post, we got. Everything we got at creating this uh, shape-shifting creature. So uh, I'm not going to go through the entire entry because it's uh, he has a, a lot of details that he throws out. But here are the high points. This is what you would need. Key alterations include... Selected breeding for appropriate uh, physicality and muscle control. Okay. Because you're going to need muscle control to shift the face around and shift everything about. Embryotic stimulation of overdeveloped back muscles and hyperelastic spine for height control. Gross. Yeah. The embryonic manipulation of the body's uh, salamic sacs altering their position and allowing them to serve in the voluntary inflation of artificial tubes that are implanted after puberty, thus allowing conscious body size alteration. So (laughs) essentially bladders in the body that allow you to just fill up as needed. Okay. Childhood augmentation of facial structure, replacing certain facial bones with elastic cartilage coupled with extensive training to allow total manipulation of facial features. Cellular embryonic manipulation to allow conscious control of scalp temperature and scalp this, temperature, yeah, because this would be used to allow the color manipulation of artificial liquid crystal hair follicles that are later implanted like individually mm-hmm. genetic man- manipulation to enable the conscious hormonal control of eye pigment, fetal manipulation, and surgical augmentation to produce male genitals that are retractable within a vaginal cavity for visual gender swapping so They wouldn't actually be able to change sex, but they could sort of uh, retract the genitals uh, into a cavity as if they were the landing gear of an airplane. Oh, wow. Training and surgery to enhance deferential muscle and autonomic nerve control. Uh, So in other words, a face dancer by this definition would be an extremely complex product uh, and no mere human subspecies. Uh, but this is just one take. We also um, have a take from Sandy Field in her essay, "Evolution by Any Means on dune and this is from the Science of dune and she goes into a lot of um, a lot of these sort of highly evolved human models that we discuss here. Uh, but she posits that uh, face dancers mimic their targets through conscious migration of body cells. So in order to swiftly change form, a face dancer would need to reorganize its skin cells, uh, musculature, and skeletal elements, a feat they might accomplish through the the, uh, dissolution and recombination of the cell-to-cell bonds that hold the tissue together. (laughs) Um, Now, how might uh, the Thelaxu have accomplished this? Uh, Here's what she had to say. Quote, the concerted action of newly created hormones selected genetically by the thylaxu over many generations could act to allow different cell types to move when prompted by neurological signals. Face dancing, then, could be a genetically derived ability to generate specific hormones at will, which allow for the concerted movement of skin, muscle, bone, and other cells to
1: new locations to create the appearance of another person. So there you go. Uh, I mean, I, I appreciate that as a as a great attempt to explanation. I, I somehow don't feel like a, a creature like that could exist in reality. I mean, certainly you can imagine some types of, uh, you know, chameleon-type elements like uh, changing pigmentation. I mean, we see octopuses and stuff that have yeah. a remarkable ability to change their external appearance at, at will. But mo- the moving of bones and things like that, that sounds... Impossible to me.
0: Yeah, I, I do love the the um, the rigor in both of these examples because one yeah. takes a very um, you know genetic, cellular, hormonal approach, and the other is a very. More of a varied approach, but also all into just post-human cybernetic tinkering. Yeah, and I guess in reality you could create a, a model that is a combination of the two. Maybe draw in some biomimicry by looking to the world of of the uh, of the octopus or the cuttlefish, and saying, "Well, how could you create those same sort of flesh effects in a humanoid
1: creature?" Ah, well, here's something I would say. I, I don't know to what extent they have shape shifting precision in the books, but I would I would buy this creature more. If it could make basic changes to its body but but not sort of target a particular individual like hmm. I you know can look now exactly like Robert Lamb as opposed to just I can look different than I normally look
0: yeah yeah it would and I, I think in the books it's laid out that it depends on how long they study a target so if they study you know they just sort of glance at you it would be like a very rough, Uh, Version, but they would ideally want to uh, study you in earnest for a few days before replacing you. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so there you go. We're we're out of time. Uh, That's the biology of Dune.
1: But before we go, Robert, I got to ask you about the David Lynch movie. Yes, I've been burning to talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean I read the book and then I watched the movie, and there's so much to like about the movie actually because it's got great sets and costumes. Some parts of it are truly weird. Uh, in, in ways that are really fun and exciting. And other aspects of it are just incomprehensible. I, I I watched it with my wife, Rachel, and I constantly had to explain things because the movie does not make sense on its own.
0: Yeah, it's it's been a long time since I've seen the movie. Though I did last night, I rewatched the... Um intro material that was on the, the TV airing of it, where they have the the still illustrations and some narration to set up the world. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. There's, there's so much that doesn't work in the films and ultimately led to it being a, kind of a train wreck. But then there's so many elements that are that are well done. Like some of the casting is just weird. Some of the casting is just spot on. The costumes are amazing. Some of the, the visual takes on the world are just perfect but it just doesn't all come together.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I, I think Dune could be a really great animated movie.
0: Yeah. Like imagine if Miyazaki had, had taken it on,
1: you know, yeah. cause you have the ecological
0: elements that he's, you know, so, so present in his work.
1: Oh man, that's a mm-hmm. thing that I think was really lacking. in at least the version of Dune that I saw now, I heard that there, there are shorter, there's a shorter version and a longer version. I'm not sure which one I saw, uh, uh, if there's a shorter version, I cannot imagine it because the version <laughs> I saw left out so much explanation. It, it's crazy, but uh, but yeah, the one thing that really seemed left out of the movie is the ecological themes of the book. You know, yeah. all, all the concerns about water, uh, about uh, about how to survive in the environment. I mean, this is a this is a key part of the book, and it's uh, you know maybe one out of every three pages is primarily about water. Yeah, and this is just not the case in the movie.
0: Yeah, indeed. And that's, you know, ultimately a, you know, a a large thing to be missing from the the
1: finished product. On the other hand, the movie does have, I don't know if you remember this from the movie, but the, the, the strategically inserted pug. Oh, yes. House Atreides has a pug.
0: Yeah. And after you mentioned this, I saw he, the pug shows up in the still illustrations for the uh, TV uh, version (laughs) uh, intro.
1: So it's got Jürgen Prochnow standing there with his his beard and his uniform, holding a pug. Yeah. There's also a scene of Patrick Stewart as Gurney Halleck uh, fighting a battle, and he's got the pug in his arms.
0: <laughs> yeah, I do not remember. Uh, I've in my reread of the book, I've not come across the pug. Yet, I do so I'm not. Pretty not sure think they that added that.
1: Their, pug um, atreides is not in the book.
0: Yeah, they they added the pug. They adding the added the weirding module. Um, and a few other things they, they yeah. added and then left out some, some key things as well. So yeah. there you go. Well, hey, I know that a lot of you out there have uh, comments you would like to add on the Dune universe, on the Dune movies, on some of, this, uh, uh, some of the possible science behind the biology, behind the technology that we discussed in the other episodes, and we would, of course, love to hear from you. As always, check out our homepage, stufftoblowyourmind.com, uh, and you'll also want to check out the landing page for this episode that will include links out to these books that we've mentioned, to related uh, articles, as well as uh, where you can find some of the music that we've featured. And, uh, and indeed, as we close out here, we're going to be listening to uh, the track Arrakis by musician Raleigh Porter off his 2011 album, After Time, released by Subtext Recordings. Uh, there'll be a link to that on the landing page for this episode, but you can also learn more about him and his work at
1: RaleighPorter.com. And if you want to get in touch with us about your favorite aspect of the Dune novels or the Dune movies or your least favorite aspect <laughs> or just tell us what you think about Dune or give us feedback on the episode, you can email us at BlowTheMind at For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.